Do we really surrender all? It's going to be one of the great questions we have to answer today uh, by the end of the sermon as we're going to be talking about fear as we continue in our series, Going Against the Grain. We all had a laughable moment there during prayer as uh, uh, we had a little one come up on the stage and, and climb there. Did you see that? You, you didn't? Oh, my, you guys were praying. I guess you were doing what you were supposed to be doing. So we, we just had a little baby, but, but it's not uncommon in a setting like this to see little kids come up here like during the service and like want to come greet their parents or run all the way up on this place. And then, I don't know what age it kicks in, but at some point, we all get stage fright. Where does that come from? Because we're obviously not born with it. Because we love to just come up here. I mean, we'll have folks come up here and get on the piano, but if we were having an official piano recital, and we had young 11-year-old, you know, fill in the blank with your child's name, I mean, they'd be sweating beads, right? Their hands would be trembling. So where do fears come from? Because there's obviously some, something that is not true that that child, or even us as adults who would be mortified to have to come up here and stand on this stage, there's something untrue that is informing our fear that even causes us to tremble in our boots. Uh, or in our loafers or heels or whatever it is that we wear when we stand on stages uh, like this. Isn't that interesting? Well, we're going to talk more about fear in a more comprehensive way in just a few moments, but if I could, I would love to just kind of greet those of you who are uh, with us for the very first time. If you are a guest of Gospel Hope's your first service, just kind of put your hands up again. I want to see who you are. Amen. <laughs> Praise God for you. And I pray that, uh, or I hope, at least on your way in, you were greeted by our team at the connection table and you received a little gift that we have set aside for you. Um, but uh, in addition to that, even if you are uh, not a guest of Gospel Hope, if you've been in and out and you don't know it, we are in a new series entitled Going Against the Grain. Going Against the Grain. And this story is modeled around the life of Elijah found in 1 Kings. I'll say more about it in just a few moments, but uh, if you want to catch up on that, you can listen to some previous messages uh, that we've preached on the topic. But going against the grain, what is that all about? I'm curious. I didn't have to explain this much in the 9.30, but in the 11 o'clock, I don't want to play any games. How many people here had woodshop uh, in high school? Yeah, oh, a very, just a minority of hands are going up. Um, but uh, going, how many people know what it means to go against the grain? Without being, oh, okay, again, uh, forgive me and my, my prejudice. So as you know, to go against the grain simply means to go in a direction that is different from the natural flow, specifically talking about a piece of wood, right? You don't want to sand against the grain. You don't want to apply varnish against the grain. Uh, that's what it means to go against the grain. Well, today in our message, we're going to be talking about what it means to trust God in ways that at times may call us to go against the grain to go against the grain of culture, to go against the grain of even some of our own insecurities and some of our own impulses and predilections. But going against the grain is just a reoccurring feature in the lives of those who are following God. And I want to give you some tools today to help you learn how to go against the grain, not just uh, uh, because you are wired differently and you are a, a go-getter, an antinomian, or a contrarian. You're just a kind of person that refuses to go with the flow. You're just a natural rebel 
that, you know, follows the beat of their own drum. That's secular going against the grain. I want to talk to you about some very sanctified ways in which we will be called to go against the grain and why that's important. But let's pray first. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning. And we are thankful to you that we can surrender all and that we are called to surrender all. And there are some things that we need to surrender. We need to surrender our sins, surrender our whole lives. There's so much that we need to surrender. But Lord God, oftentimes it is our fears that we need to surrender because they are robbing us of our peace and our understanding of who you are and what you want to do in our life. Would you help us this morning through the depths of your word Lord God, understand in a more detailed way how it is that you want us to deal with our fears. Would you glorify yourself, clarify your gospel, beautify your son, edify your people? Allow us to experience exactly what the Word of God says that it does. It provides us with doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that we would be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Lord God, would you take aim at our sin Take aim at our fears. Take aim at our ignorances. Take aim at the, the, the immediate situations that we have going on in our lives and show us through the wisdom of your word how to manage them. Would you allow us to experience a demonstration of your spirit, something that I cannot do through the most detailed notes in the world. I cannot effectively identify, Lord God, and aim at and point to all of the issues that exist in the lives of these people who've gathered today. This is, Lord God, the job of your spirit, and I just ask, O oh God, that all things that I say and do would be subservient to the work of your spirit. Let there be a demonstration that every heart would leave the room being absolutely clear that they have heard from you and not from me. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, why do we need to teach a message called going against the grain? Why do we need to do that? Well, I just believe that life, as I said earlier, has a natural flow. It has a natural cadence to it. And uh, often the natural flow and cadence of life and culture and even some of our own predilections based on how we were raised and based on how we are wired might lead us in directions that don't fully and always honor God. And as we are trusting God by faith, we are maybe called to go against, not maybe, we will be called in many cases to go against the grain. How many of you are familiar uh, with the discipline called risk management? Risk management. Anybody here work in risk management? right? Not to give a seminar on risk management, but essentially risk management in every industry and career path is either a department or even some place that you could outsource it to a company that helps organizations in the process of delivering their goods and services discover, analyze, and then hopefully mitigate negative outcomes and consequences to what they do in delivering their goods and services. They are just natural inherent risk. Right? But that's not just the business of corporate companies. I believe it's also the business of people like you and I. You and I are risk managers, whether we believe it or not. Every time you make a decision in your mind, whether you do it in milliseconds or you mull over your decisions for months at a, at a time, what you're doing is risk management. You are asking yourself, what is going to be the outcome of this particular decision or this direction that I'm going? And is this decision or this outcome going to put me in jeopardy? Is it going to cause me to feel uncomfortable? Is it going to achieve my end goal? What am I going to have to give up? We are all in the business of risk management. And when it comes to being a believer, historically, 
it has always been a risky proposition. We are not necessarily a people in America here today that have the risk of losing our lives for following Christ, but we do often, often find ourselves running the risk of things like being canceled. Now, that might sound like a silly social proposition, but being canceled for some could mean it completely causes your ability to earn for your family to collapse. I mean, yes, you may not get the prime spot in your apartment complex because someone is against you, but that's the least of your worries. We don't want to fall out of favor with others. We don't want to find, we don't want to experience risk within our families. We don't want to get uninvited to certain social spaces. We don't want to have promotions and opportunities to be interrupted. We don't want anybody for the, for the expression of our Christian faith to find reason to deny us uh, great opportunities, whether it be to get into a certain school or to move up on a certain floor or, again, or to advance in a certain way in our career or to be denied certain opportunities if you're an entrepreneur. We're always in the business of managing risk. And one of the things that I believe muzzles many believers, causes us to be quiet, to not be provocative in our faith, if we've talked about it in weeks past, is the fear of what may happen if people see a robust public demonstration of allegiance to Jesus. We're always managing risk. And I believe that that muzzling of our faith and that desire to be a covert operative for the kingdom comes from the fact that we've got fears that we don't know what to do with. And the heart of today's message is to help us know what to do with those fears and to find new faith in the fact that God sees you, he hears you, he understands and knows the real risk, that he is the ultimate risk manager and that in Christ he has mitigated those risks. So let's take a look. In today's message, I would hope the following would happen that our faith in the Lord would lead us to regularly reevaluate our fears. I would hope that our faith in the Lord would lead us to regularly reevaluate our fears. As we look at this particular segment of Elijah's story in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 19, you are probably familiar with the big event that's coming up next week. The big event in the text is going to be where Elijah has his standoff on top of Mount Carmel with the, uh, with the prophets of Baal, and God rains down fire, consumes the offering, and then off we go with this big moment of going against the grain. Well, before we get to that, there are some other moments in where someone has to also go against the grain that we're going to look at this week, and these moments are just as important. If you are a note taker, there are four distinct fears that I'm going to be looking at this morning as we read through the text. I'm going to read all 19 verses, and you can see if you can identify some of these fears. Some of them are overt, others of them are less uh, visible, and I'll have to kind of carve them out of today's text. Take a look with me. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 19, it reads as follows. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So obviously, in a previous message, God has told Elijah to go, and he declared that there would be a drought in response to the, the depravity and the disobedience of Ahab to follow after Baal. And now he's saying, after many days. 
uh, that he needs to go back and present himself, and then rain will come. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. We're in verse 2 now. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. And now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs uh, and the water and all the valleys, and perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass throughout it, and Ahab went in one direction by himself, Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, it is you, my Lord, Elijah. And he answered him, it is. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. Now he's talking about go to, say, go to Ahab. And he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God gives, there is no, lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord, that he's talking about Ahab, has not sent to seek after you. And when they should say he is not here, he would take an oath uh, of the kingdom or of the nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell uh, Ahab, behold, Elijah is here. As soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you um, to, to a place that I don't know. And so when I come and tell Ahab that he and he cannot find you, he'll kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Did I mention, did I mention that, was it not told to the Lord that when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave, and I fed them bread and water. And now you say, go tell, uh, you know, Ahab, show your, that you're going to, that you're going to show yourself to him today. And so Obadiah went, Excuse me. So Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, behold, I stand, and surely I will show myself to him today. And so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And Ahab saw Elijah and said to him, it is you, the troubler of Israel. And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and have followed after Baal's. And now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of, prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Risk management, going against the grain. Why do we need this? Well, I'll tell you why. There are four fears depicted in this text, and here's why we need to address fears. Wherever fear goes unchecked, it foments untruth. Wherever fear goes unchecked, it produces, fertilizes, and it foments untruths. How many of you remember being a child, laying in the bed at night, maybe being put to bed, and, and, and you pull the covers up over your, your, you know, over your shoulders and your face, and as soon as the lights go off, you see in the, in the room what appears to be a monster. Remember that? or something spooky, or something that, that gave you a lack of confidence. You remember that. I don't know if you did. Maybe you were just more vigilant than I. 
But then you would call out maybe to a parent, and they would come into the room and say, what's the matter? they turn on the light, and immediately what was your fear is only revealed to be just kind of a sketchy shadow from the edge of your lampshade that was creating a creepy figure on the back wall. What had to happen? Light had to be shed on that fear so that the truth could be revealed. But the lampshade never changed. It was just the way that it was looking. It was a lie. And the longer that that fear was allowed to live there, it robbed you of your peace and your ability to take rest. Well, we're no longer children, and we're no longer scared of the dark. But as adults, I assure you, there is still a monster at the edge of the bed that somebody needs to shine light on. And for some of you, it is the monster of what your mother or father might think if you choose to follow Christ in this robust way. It is the monster of what your manager might say if you choose to honor Christ this way in the workplace. It is the monster at the edge of the bed that says what might happen and how might I be embarrassed if I open my Bible in a coffee shop in a public place. It is the monster that says what might happen in our subdivision and in our neighborhood and amongst our other social contexts and in the lives of these friends that I have not seen for years from college who have one image of me and when they find out that I'm officially a Bible thumper. We have all kinds of monsters living at the edges of the bed that are robbing us of our peace and confidence and causing us to go with the flow rather than trusting God and going against the grain. And I want to, I want to officially turn the lights on some of those fears so that we can see the truth of the matter and what God is doing today. Jesus put it this way when he identified some of the fears in the lives of his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy the soul and the body in hell. And are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than sparrows. Jesus shines light on the fact that you're worried about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to do, and you are more valuable than birds, and not a single one of them can fall to the ground without the Father's care. And he says, you're more valuable than them. That's the truth of the matter. This is the, what we want to do through today's text, is shine light on four distinct fears. Oh, those pens are so ready. You're like, say the fears, Pastor Rod. Well, here they are, at least one of them. In verse 1, the scriptures say, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. For us, it's just two words, after many days. But for them, it felt like an eternity of God having turned off the faucets of heaven. There's a drought in the land. They are not feeling or hearing God's presence. And this has happened many times throughout Scripture where people have cried out to God and saying, Lord, where are you? What's happening right now? Fear number one is this. God's silence equals ambivalence, that he doesn't really care fully about what's happening to us, that God's silence equals ambivalence. The, 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 after many days, so God hasn't been talking. They haven't heard an official word from him yet, and they are fearful. Israel, is at the, this is their first time. Think about the time when Noah was called to build an ark when it had not yet rained. The people outside the ark would not get in because they had not heard of rain before, 
God hadn't spoken about their sin previously. They just carried on with life as usual. They thought God was ambivalent about it, and it resulted in their judgment. Gideon, when he was approached to be a great leader in Israel, said to the angel who called him, well, if God is with us, where are the miracles? Where are the blessings? Why are we hiding in caves? Anytime there has been an absence of God's word, people question and begin, one of our fears informs us of a lie that God is ambivalent. He doesn't care about what's happening. Habakkuk did the same thing. We would cry out to the Lord and say, well, God, if you're really in control and you're really handling things here, how can you allow the priests and the prophets to do the things that they're doing right now? How can you allow these injustices to live? Right now in our land, many of you are saying, Lord, it's been a long time since you've answered one of my prayers. Are you not caring about the current distress that I have? Do you not care about what's happening on my job? Do you not care about what's happening in my body? Do you not care about what's happening in my marriage? Do you not care about what's happening in this country? It feels like it's been a long time since you've heard a word from the pulpit that, that was like an like a arrow right at you. And you're saying, well, God's silence must be ambivalence. You're, you're, you're reading your Bible devotionally, and you're like, yeah, I see the notes at the bottom of the page, but it's not speaking to me. Lord, when was the last time you spoke to me? And sometimes silence feels like ambivalence, or at least that's the lie that is being informed by that fear. And it's not true. You see, God's allowance of negative circumstances doesn't mean that he has ceased to care about my situation. As a matter of fact, 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, New Testament believers are cautioned not to interpret the lengthy duration since the last time they've seen the move of God as somehow that he has taken his hands off of creation because all things are continuing to exist as they always have. But he actually says you need to reinterpret this season where you don't see a dynamic move of God as being a perseverance, a persevering act of God where he is patiently waiting for all to come to repentance because he's not willing that any should perish. But the Bible goes further. Isaiah chapter 55 Look at the picture. Don't just hear the words, but look at the picture painted for us by Isaiah chapter 55 concerning the Lord's word in verse 10. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but the wa they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and give seed to the sower and then bread to the eater, so that my word, shall, that, my word that goes out of my mouth it will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish the very purpose that I sent it out for, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I had sent it. In other words, God is saying just like rain that has this kind of supply chain of outcomes in the life of the people, he says the last time I spoke, that truth is still translating. It's still holding things together. It is still at work. So just because you haven't gotten this big bombastic revelation that you're accustomed to during your time of journaling doesn't mean that God has stopped speaking. It means that the, thing, the last thing that he said is still working. And that's what we need to do with fear number one. God's silence does not equal ambivalence. God's silence equals patience. That last word that he spoke to you, if you wrote it down, if you remember it, if you've been applying it, he is letting that word, like water, like seed, that produces other things, he is allowing it to mature. And so right here in the land of Israel, in the life of the widow at Zarephath, who just a couple of weeks ago, we saw her come to faith in Christ because of the drought. 
It was the duration of the drought that created the appetite for her to need to know that God would work through Elijah, if you remember that story. It is the duration of the drought where God hadn't said anything and changed the circumstances that's creating the context in which Obadiah found faith to hide the prophets when Jezebel was cutting them off. It is in the, the, the course of the drought that Ahab is being drawn to a place. God is redemptive here. He is being drawn to a place that hopefully he would repent. And other people who are not the star of the story here, but there are other people in Israel who I'm certain their hearts are turning toward God because they recognize that this drought is because we have sinned. And so the Lord is using this dry season to let the truth that he has spoken in times past mature in their lives. Don't go weary when you haven't heard from God in what you consider to be many days. And so just because we're not hearing should not be interpreted as the lie that God is no longer caring. Fear number two. Look at verses two through six. So when Elijah went to show himself to Ahab, it says that the famine was severe in Samaria. Wait a minute, Pastor Rod, I thought we were talking about a drought. Now we're talking about a famine? Yeah, because the famine is a derivative of the drought. So because the land is not able to produce its normal vegetation, there is no seed to produce no bread, no olives to wipe it, no, to make the oil from that they're going to wipe it in right? No, no cheese that they can make from the goat's milk because the goats can't eat, right? And the animals are drying up. And so there is now famine in the land. And so one of the fears that would be born out of this, fear number two, is, is that God's severity equals a severance of relationship. That the severity of God equals a severance of relationship. But what we need to note is the New Testament truth that says the following in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10, that for godly grief or godly sorrow produces repentance, and it leads to salvation without regret, whereas God, worldly grief produces death. Follow me carefully. God causes it to rain on both the just and the unjust, which means by implication that he also causes it to, have, to be a drought on both the just and the unjust. Both those who follow God faithfully are feeling this and those who do not are feeling this. And God is effectually working in both of their lives. And if we respond to this season in a godly way, it produces a godly outcome in the life of one, but it produces obviously an egregious outcome in the life of another. But all of these under the canopy of God's righteousness and how he would use this event. The drought is just as much an expression of God's faithfulness as the fruitfulness of the land. You hear me? The drought is just as much an example of God's faithfulness as is the fruitfulness. If you don't believe me, um, you'll have to take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 14. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, God lists it with, with, with incredible painstaking detail all the ways in which he will bless Israel, bless their land, bless their fountains, their fields. They'll be blessed in the field. They'll be blessed in the city. They'll be blessed everywhere that they go. You remember that song? Y'all thought Fred Hammond came up with that? No, this is the God. Jesus, God, God, God came up with those lyrics. This is where he got it from. 
God had a multifaceted practical promise that these people would be walking in high cotton, if you've ever heard that, if you grew up in the South. I mean, they would have a plenteous and full and fruitful life. But the conversation doesn't stop there. The same God who promises would equal its sincerity that their lives would feature those blessings if they would follow him and obey him turns the corner in that same text if you read down further and says, and oh, by the way, with the same strength that I'll bless you, I'll also spank you. If you choose to follow after other gods, those same places where you will go in the field and in the fountains and in your home and in the land and in the city, those places will be dry before you. They will, they will be burdensome to you. The ground will crack under your feet and the fields will not yield and your calves will dry up. We have adopted a very American view of blessing that suggests that when the ground is dry that God ain't working. No, the same text that promises blessings promises this burden in the lives of those who would not follow him faithfully. Therefore, the severity of God does not equal severance of relationship. The severity equals his sincerity. In other words, this is where God is saying, you can trust me equally on both sides of this redemptive coin. You got to realize that this isn't God dealing with a pagan nation. This is God dealing with his own people. A people who he drew out of nothing. I want you to think about what, where you are in the Bible. First and second Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles is called the monarchical history of Scripture for a reason. Prior to there being a monarchy, that is, men on the throne, it was God who sat on the throne during the, during the theocratic period in the, in the judges' era. And he cautioned and he warned Israel not to long for human kings because even your best human king will let you down. Even one that is a man after God's own heart will do some things that are dumb and will cause there to be certain ill stuff that happens in the land. And so what God is doing in this, this manual, in this diary, in this historical documentary, in this multi-episode Netflix series called The Monarchical History of Israel, he has given them a handbook whereby they can see that you don't just need a regular king, you need somebody who is the king of kings. I'm going to show you king after king after king, whether they be a great king or whether they be a terrible king or an average king, you will long for a better king whose name is Christ. That's the whole purpose of this book. That's the macro purpose of First and Second Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, is to show you that here is the anthology of the best men that you could bring to the table, and none of them hold the candle to the Christ. Do you see now why you need a Messiah? I believe that the same thing is happening for us as American believers. We're getting ready to go to the polls soon. And I hope that we're not holding our, our hopes and aspirations for the greatest future of all time in our hands and believing that they'll happen at the ballot box. Because what God is going to show us, just like he showed Israel, is I don't care who you get in the seat. You need a king of kings and a lord of lords, one who is fully vested in the interests of the people, but at the same time knows how to beautifully balance the interests of God and never compromise on any. The severity of God does not equal severance of relationship. This does not mean that God has given up on Israel. As a matter of fact, I want you to look at the faithfulness of Obadiah here. Verses two through six, this is the first time of a second mention that the scriptures describe for us the faithfulness of Obadiah. And his name means worshiper of God. Follow this carefully. 
So he's over the household of Ahab. And when his wife cuts off the prophets, Obadiah hides a hundred prophets, 50 in each cave. And not only does he hide them there, but he feeds them to keep them alive. I believe what you have is a practical analogy of what the psalmist told us. Lord, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. In other words, there are times in my life where, where, where all that I can do is just hide what I do have from God so that he will continue to speak to me and I have something to hold on to. I don't want my land to be vacant of you speaking. Lord, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? I want to hide your word in my heart that I won't sin against you. And this is what Obadiah is doing. The worshipers of God, Obadiah, the worshipers of God are people who are continuously hiding and hoarding the word of God in their heart making sure that it has a place to, to speak regardless of whatever else is going on in the outside culture. And this is what fear likes to do. Fear likes to come alongside like a pickpocket and distract us and take the word from us. I don't know if anybody in here has been pickpocketed. Don't have to raise your hand. We were just, um, over, we were just overseas um, uh, this time last week we were there. And I remember on multiple tours, they would remind us, like, hey, be care very close, you know, be care careful, you know, this is where pickpockets, you know, pockets are running amok. And I began reflecting on that, and I was like, you know what? Pickpockets never come for, like, gum and chapstick. They're not like, ha, we got him. <laughs> what did you get? Carmex. <laughs> oh, okay. No, they're not looking for spearmint and Carmex. What do they want? The jackpot for a pickpocket is your ID and your currency. Follow me carefully. They want to take your passport. They want to take the documentation that proves who you are and where you're from. They want to take your currency, the very stuff that you use to conduct business on behalf of the kingdom, which is your faith. Fear is a pickpocket because what it does is it taps you on this shoulder to get you looked this way while Satan is going through your pockets and taking your ID and your currency trying to rob you of your ability to, to know who you are and why you're here and how you might get back to God, to make you totally disoriented and make you feel like a foreigner and a tourist rather than an ambassador. That's what fear comes to do. This is how fear is used. And so this is why your fears cannot be just swept under the rug or put on the back shelf. They have to be dealt with and confronted. Obadiah hides the word, but Ahab takes matters into his own hands. There's Obadiahs in the room today, but there's also Ahabs. There's even an Ahab standing in the pulpit, ladies and gentlemen. Ahab typifies exactly what I do when I don't want to deal with God on his own terms. You see, Ahab is going throughout the land doing the best that he can to manage the drought, to manage the punishment of God, to manage the consequences of his own sin by trying to find water in the valley so that he can feed and keep alive what he already has. The answer isn't trying to find water for your animals so that you can maintain your national strength and your own independence. The answer is to bow before God and repent. But how often do our fears inform us of a lie to matter make us more independent of God rather than dependent of God because it's too uncomfortable to admit that we were wrong and that we blew it. And so, fear number one, God's silence equals ambivalence. That's a lie. 
Fear number two, God's severity equals a severance of relationship. That's a lie. It's just a place where Satan wants to pick our pockets of our faith and our identity. Fear number three, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 7 through 9. Obadiah was on the way, and Elijah met him and said, hey, go and tell Ahab I'm here. Now, Obadiah has already operated in great faith toward God, but it was a very private and covert time kind of faith, right? Because he hid the prophets. There's some people in the room today who believe that God owes you something because of private acts of faith. Oh, you give heavy. Oh, you've served in these very silent and quiet ways. You've, 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 you've honored God in these, in these ways that in your heart were earnest. And guess what? God sees them. They, they have not fallen silent on him, but God is saying, I require more. I require something else. I just won't allow you to live as a secret servant of the kingdom. And so Obadiah is, 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 is kind of at angry with Elijah because he's calling him to say, go to Ahab and tell him I'm here. That's a very public act of faith that has another kind of risk that Obadiah is apparently not fully prepared in this moment to manage. He's prepared to manage the risk of feeding and hiding the prophets. He's hid the word, you know, hid, hid the prophets in the cave, but he's not prepared to go before Obadiah. And the scriptures mention it twice. And that's why I believe that this is the third fear that we need to identify. The third fear is that God's call didn't fully calculate my cost. Well, God, you called me to that, but man, that's, that's kind of high. I was prepared to serve you here, but you want me to serve you here? That's too risky for me. And it's not just too risky for me. I don't think you know my full risk. I don't think you know how much of my personal happiness is, is on the table about to be sacrificed. What about me? What about my safety, God? I'm willing to obey you, but what about my comfort? This is where you get to go against the grain. Sometimes your faith calls you to go against the grain of your own comfort, your own traditions, your own best practices, your own ideas, your own things that you believe equal a great life in God. Not to abandon faithfulness, but you exact, I know you hear what I'm saying. Follow me carefully. Obadiah is afraid, and he's speaking to Elijah as if this isn't a word from the Lord. He says, how dare you ask me to do this? Don't you know that this will put me in harm's way and cause me to be killed? Well, if it is God who's working through Elijah and God who, in, who prompted him to hide those prophets, don't you think God has already done the calculus on what would happen if he goes to Ahab and says Elijah is back in town? But our hearts will do that to us when fear is at work. It blinds us to the beauty of God's wisdom and omniscience. It blinds us to the fact that God is capable of figuring things out at a level that we cannot and that God is not obligated to share with us how he's going to work it out. Past faithfulness, we believe that God has lost view of that and that he's not fully dialed in with our future risk. Jesus spoke to this very thing. Uh, on one of his journeys, as he was increasing in great popularity, people would run up to Jesus to say, Jesus, I'll do anything. I want to follow you. And Jesus began to inform them right there in Luke, who... Luke chapter 6, I believe it is, you're not going to see it on the screen, of what is formerly known as the cost of discipleship. One man came up to Jesus and says, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. You sure about that? The first cost of discipleship is sacrificial living. There is just some things, some, some comforts that you are going to have to give up. 
The second person comes up to Jesus and goes, oh, Jesus, I'm willing to follow you, but let me first uh, go home and, and bury my father. And Jesus says, uh, let the dead bury the dead. You come on and follow me. The second cost of discipleship is sanctified loyalties. What are you really committed to? Third person comes up to Jesus. And he says, uh, hey, I'm willing to follow you, but first let me bid farewell to those who are at my house. And Jesus says, um, no person is fit for the kingdom if you put your hand to the plow and look back. Single-minded labor. Three costs. Any person in this room that calls himself a follower of Christ, at some point your life will be called to pay the cost of discipleship. You might be, Pastor Rod, that's kind of high. That's uncomfortable. But guess what? It's crumbs. The cost of discipleship is mere crumbs in comparison to reward of faithfulness. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 tells us that it is written that the eye has not seen, nor has the ear heard, nor has the heart imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, God says, I'm not just going to pay you back. I'm going to reward you in a way that would make you giggle at what you gave up. I believe Obadiah is finding himself in one of those kinds of moments. But there's more. There's a fourth cost, or there is a fourth fear. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 through 19, you have the official encounter between Elijah and Ahab. And Elijah says, or excuse me, Ahab says, hey, it's Elijah. Are you not the troubler of Israel? Elijah responds and says, no, I'm not the one that's troubling Israel. You trouble Israel because of your sin and following after Baal, departing from God's commandments as your fathers had done. Follow me very carefully. Ahab is not some Gentile king who is not familiar with the works of God. Ahab would have grown up in a household fully functioning and practicing the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6, that they ought to be trained and brought up in the knowledge of who God is and what he has done. What would cause a person who is so familiar, infinitely closer to the past works of God than we are, what would cause a man like that to walk off and follow after Baal? I'll tell you what it is. The same thing that causes me to follow after idols and you too. You see, the, 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 the fourth fear is this, is that God's commands don't fully comprehend all facets of my needs. Lord, that's a religious truth. That's not a fully baked relational truth. Lord, that's a religious concept. That works at church when I'm in my community group, but that don't work on my career. Lord, that's a religious truth, but it really doesn't help me with the issue that I'm having with my child. Lord, that's a religious truth, but it really isn't con uh, you know, consistent with what doctors say. Lord, that's a religious truth, but that's not the most recent doctor within HR. Lord, that's a religious truth, but that's not where you're not keeping up with the times. There is something in our hearts that may never come out of our mouth that says, Lord, your commandments don't fully comprehend all facets of what I need as an individual. These are broad sweeping policies that may produce generally good outcomes most of the time, but right now I need something more specific to me. This is what this fourth fear says. This is the lie that it says. And the longer that it allows us to live in our life, guess what happens? You ever wonder why Israel would follow idol guys? Same reason you do. You see, when I... I just want to make sure I get this right. I don't want to say it wrongly. Wherever, in my life and in your life, wherever there is dissatisfaction with God's provision, an idol is standing by to take that position. 
My dissatisfaction can be, well, God, I don't think that's the right size for me. God, I don't think that's the right time for me. God, I think that's too bold. That's not really customized for my personality type. Wherever I am dissatisfied with God's provision, an idol God is standing by to take that position in my life and heart. There's something else. Now, I don't want you to think about an idol God as some kind of wood structure sitting next to Publix or your favorite grocery store. I'm talking about the idols that live within our day and culture. It's any and everything that serves as a substitute to give us comfort and security in our lives apart from God. And so, Ahab is that representative in each one of us that has found some dissatisfaction in what God is calling us to do to say that that's not elastic enough to fit the current times or my current situation. But you know who Elijah is? He is a typification of the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit wants to do on a regular basis is to boldly and publicly walk up in my life and have a face-to-face meeting about each one of my fears and how they have led me to serve false and idol gods. That's the job and the work of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, this is why we are told not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, we are told not to quench the Holy Spirit and do not despise prophecies. This is why we are told in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh and the two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So as you're having this wrestling match, we are told not to muzzle and not to silence the Holy Spirit because he is the representative from God. He is the Elijah who stands up in you, reminding you of the word of God and why that particular fear is about to pick your pocket and put you at odds with God. And so the willingness to follow a false God does not come from an ignorance that it is a false God but it comes from an acceptance of the trade-off, even though it's a cheap replacement. When we were over in uh, Israel, we regularly, our tours always ended with some drop-off in some marketplace. Now, actually, we were in Ephesus at this time. And uh, I was amused at the, uh, the tour guide when she said, this is where you come to get your genuine fakes. She says, yeah, the people know that these are fake, but they're genuine fakes. In other words, we, we, we make no bones about it that, that these are not the real deal, but these will really give you what you want. What is it about us that's willing to accept a genuine fake or a false God? You see, the same reason you'll accept a false brief, a fake briefcase or a fake handbag. All I need is just something to carry a few of my things. I don't care how long it lasts. These shoes are cute. This belt will hold my pants up. It'll do just enough in my life. And when it wears out, I'll replace it. We are prepared to accept false solutions in our lives knowing that they are not eternal but temporary because I just want to get it done. Lord, I just need a Band-Aid. This is why we allow false gods to have room in our lives. This is why we're willing to hold on to things that really don't come from or that lead us from God. So what do we do about all of these fears if that's how they're leading us away from God? I believe that the Bible calls us in the reevaluation of our fears to take each one of our fears and cross-reference them. That, that, is, that is a dad joke as well as a theological truth. I believe that we need to be cross-referencing our fears. You see, for Israel, 
they didn't have a cross, but they did have a crossroads, if you will. They had a moment where God had done something crazy and dynamic that they could never do for themselves. They were up to their eyeballs in risk. They were a little people who God had chosen by his grace, and they found themselves in great jeopardy, the Egyptian army mowing down on them. Here they are with their backs to the Red Sea, not knowing what to do. They were dead in their tracks. God reaches down, opens up the sea, brings them out on dry ground, and brings them into a relationship that profoundly changes their future and gives them a future that they can never create for themselves. Egypt was their gospel. And this is why God would regularly reference, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought you out of Egypt. And they were supposed to reference all of their fears and all of their issues back to that moment to find fresh faith to trust the God who had historically been working for them and on their behalf and call them when they could not call or save themselves. You and I don't have to go back to Egypt. You and I should go to the cross. Because in the same way, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We had no way of officially dealing with our sin. We were up to our eyeballs, our backs were against the wall. We were stuck. We didn't have anything, we didn't have any way of rescuing ourselves. And God, by his grace, reached down in the same way he reached down for them, and he got us and he saved us. And then, in the same way in Egypt that he vanquished all of Israel's enemies, he vanquished our enemies at the cross. Sin, death, and the devil. Everything that you fear in this life is a derivative of sin, death, and the devil. There is some consequence, whether it be spiritual or practical, that if you follow it to its nth degree, leads to sin, death, and the devil. These are the things that we fear in this life. And God says, I have dealt with them at the cross. Will you cross-reference your fears? Will you take each one of your fears and bring them to the cross to see what truth that comes from the resurrection Satan is trying to pick from your pocket? What aspect of your identity or your faith currency that should be placed in Jesus is being taken from you by this fear being allowed to have long-standing presence in your life? These fears are a distraction. God ain't saying that these fears aren't real. He's saying that they are being utilized to pick your pocket of some truth that God wants to robustly model in your life that comes from the work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place. Our greatest fear is to find out that we are at odds with God. There's been no severance of relationship, but our God is severe. He is severe enough to send his own son to do something that we couldn't do for ourselves. God is not silent, but he has spoken in such a permanent and powerful way that the truth of the gospel still translates to transformation today. Even if he doesn't say anything else, the gospel was enough. And so, if you're here today and you're saying, Pastor Rod, I would love, I would love to be able to cross-reference my fears. I am being faced with some decisions that the righteous variation of that decision makes me feel great risk. And the risk is screaming a whole lot loud, louder than the redemptive possibilities. I want to know this Jesus. I want to know this cross. I want to know how to cross-reference my fears. Well, the only way that you can cross-reference your fears is to have given your life to the one who died on the cross. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to explore that reality with someone here in our congregation of what it means to surrender to him, 
the one who died in your place for your sin, satisfying the wrath of God that is against each one of us. And in that necessary satisfaction of the wrath of God that is against us, he then is raised from the dead in victory over the very things that are trying to pick your pocket, sin, death, and the devil. But the victory is not just some kind of thematic victory. It is a practical one that gives you victory over sin every single day of your life and gives you, or gives you a promise of eternity that even when these physical bodies perish, you will be in the presence of the Lord. This is the promise and the offer of the gospel. If you don't know Jesus Christ, there's a few people in the room that I believe could help you with that. One, I can. If you want to talk to me after the service, I would love to have that conversation. But we also have some people who are putting their hands up who are part of our prayer team who would also love to hear from you or a couple of our other pastors. You see those hands? Just look around. If any of those faces look a little bit more friendly, comfortable, less aggressive, and less sweaty, feel free to talk to any one of them about what it means to give your life to Jesus. Now, I want to turn our hearts to the Lord's table, communion in particular, as we get ready to celebrate what the Lord did on the cross. If you've not received the communion emblems when you came in, would you please raise your hand so that we can make sure you receive the bread and the cup? Put your hand up, we'll bring it to you. Put your hand up, we'll bring it to you. You don't have to move, just keep those hands high. When we celebrate the Lord's work on the cross, this is not a church tradition or ceremony. It actually has real redemptive implications. Taking this does not save you, but it says that you are celebrating what has saved you. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I would ask you to press pause on participating in this because you would not be partaking in good faith. You'd be saying, Lord, I celebrate you giving up your life for me when you're saying, I don't even know if that's really true. I would ask you to pause. As a matter of fact, it, it's not that delicious that you would want to operate in something that's not your reality. I'll gladly take you out for lunch if you're hungry. But I would ask you that if you're here today and you do know the Lord Jesus Christ in the pardoning of your sins, that you would take of the cup and the bread with us. Is there anybody who still is uh, without and that needs to be served? All hands, are, all hands are down. Sounds good. Looking at our Bibles, Jesus said this. Well, actually, the Apostle Paul said this, quoting Jesus. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I want to give thanks for the bread. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for the bread, which symbolizes you having given your body. You were so sincere about the salvation of your people that you gave your own body, Lord God, to bear the brunt of our sins. You gave your body to endure, Lord God, the difficulties of this life. You felt hunger. You felt betrayal. You felt the sting of death on our behalf so that we would have a high priest who can fully sympathize with all of our weaknesses. Lord God, we thank you for your bread. We thank you for your body. Let's take the bread together. The scriptures go on to say, in the same way he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for this cup, which symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ, which is literally the ink with which you signed and ratified your new contract or covenant with humanity that you promised to follow through on all that you said you would do for your people in your word, that you would do that in our lives if we would bring ourselves under that covenant through surrender to Jesus Christ. I thank you for the blood of Jesus that not only ratifies the new covenant, but that also radically cleanses me and us when we ask for forgiveness. I thank you for that blood. Blood had to be shed to satisfy you, O God. And you gave your own son rather than requiring my blood if we place our faith in you. Lord God, we thank you for the cup. Let's take the cup together. Again, I don't know where you are in your relationship with the Lord, but if there's something about today's message that resonated with you in a way that you feel like requires deeper dialogue and conversation, I would love to have that conversation with you. Uh, I would love to direct you to somebody that would have that conversation with you. Again, if, if, if just I'm not your cup of tea, but I want to by all means, don't let anything let you leave here without speaking to someone about your current relationship with the Lord. Maybe you, are, but you have been living in a way and in a space where you feel like the Lord has severed his relationship with me. He doesn't care about me anymore. I'd love to talk to you too about that and remind you of the great truths and promises of God that there's no sin that you have that can work its way past the, Savior's, the strength of the Savior's blood and reassure you in that and help you get on a path of, of, of sanctification and walk in the right way before God. Um, and of course, if you're looking for a local church and you're saying to yourself, man, I need to be in a room with like-minded people and in relationships with folks that can hold me accountable to my relationship with the Lord and the things that I know to be true, this church is open to you. You can also see any one of us about what it means to be a part of Gospel Hope Church. We've got more details to follow. Let's worship him.